Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich, on this uh, sunny March 457th of, well, I don't know where we are now. So, In the year of our dread? Sure, yes, why not? Um, so we've got a whole uh, big show planned for everybody. Can't wait to get into it, and um, we're going to be doing that in just one moment. Just want to remind everybody, though, that we have a Tech Field Day virtual event going on with Red Hat, uh, going on actually right now as we speak. Um, so if you head on over, if you're interested in checking that out after the show or want to watch both in some sort of weird noise cacophony, I don't necessarily recommend enjoying either event that way, but you can head on over to techfieldday.com and check that out as well for uh, some deep dives into the latest in open shift and all of that red hat goodness uh but first off we're going to get started with a little section we like to call news or not here on the show this is where just too many stories that require some discussion we can't handle everything all at once but i want tom's take to find out if these stories are in fact newsy or not tom you ready to get going on this i'm ready all right First up is Oracle announced that Zoom picked Oracle as its key cloud infrastructure provider. The two companies began working about six weeks ago to deploy Zoom on core infrastructure, which seems like a quick turnaround. And Zoom still utilizes AWS and Azure for various functions and redundancy. They're a modern, uh, you know, massive SaaS scale uh, company. Of course, they're going to be multi-cloud. Why not? Oracle says Zoom is transferring more than seven petabytes a day of video through Oracle cloud infrastructure, which I saw someone saying is like 96 years worth worth of video a day or something ridiculous like that. Oracle getting a high-profile customer win. News or not here, Tom? Mm. News. Ah, And I hate to say it. Um, First of all, Zoom, I I, I believed in you. I trusted you. I defended you. And you went and enabled a supervillain. How could you? Okay, let's break it down. I want to know what Zoom is paying for this, because I promise you it's pennies on the dollar for the next year. Oracle sold this to them for a song. I I don't have any proof of that, but we all know that that's what it had to be. Please get us a high profile customer. Get us somebody that's talking about this right now. Notice how Zoom is hedging their bets. (laughs) We're still using AWS and we're still using Azure. But, you know, let's be fair. If someone walks up to you and goes, hey, will you please use our service? Uh, I don't know. We'll give it to you for like, you know, 95% 95% off just so you can say that you're a customer. All right, fine. Okay, I promise okay, you, just... when the license cost comes due next year, they ain't paying. <laughs> well, the benefit of being a uh, massive uh, SaaS multi-cloud enabled uh, company is that theoretically, I would imagine, it's uh, somewhat easier to kind of, if you're already in other places, to move loads to other places as well, especially considering you know they, they don't really have a lot of legacy uh, to go around, at least one would think. Uh, Next up here, Infinidat uh, updated its Infinibox storage arrays with a container storage interface driver, providing persistent volume block storage to a Kubernetes pod while keeping advanced data services. This also allows persistent volumes to be transferred to various Infiniboxes on-prem or extended to Infinidat's Nutrix cloud, which they announced about two years ago now, using the company's elastic data fabric across most commonly used uh, storage protocols. Infinidat seems to be the lone all-flash holdout these days, but news or not that they're now... uh, uh, Kubernetes friendly. So I think this is 
<laughs> not really news because everybody else has kind of like jumped on board this bandwagon. Although I will say that in a year where we have essentially quarantined the entire country, um, admitted the existence of UFOs, the most surprising thing that I've heard is a persistent Kubernetes storage driver. <laughs> persistent container storage. Oh, Tom. Okay. You're thinking of containers <laughs> years past. This, this is modern containers. It'll, it'll all just work out. They're like big VMs, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, next up here, Red Hat announced uh, updates to its Ansible automation platform, and uh, Automation Services Catalog is coming in May to let organizations maintain compliance requirements, and so you can kind of build out automation with those requirements in mind kind of automatically. The company is also adding more certified content to its Ansible constant collection with playbooks, modules, and plugin-related material, and a new analytics feature is coming to give visibility into how automation actions are performing, giving things like load time, failure rates, that kind of stuff, most commonly use tasks, that kind of stuff. Anything in these updates that strikes you as news or not, Tom? Well, I honestly think the compliance stuff is news because this has been a hang-up for a lot of automation people. It's like, if I have a thing randomly going off and doing stuff in my environment, do I really trust it? Well, if Ansible can report and say it's following all the compliance procedures, then yeah, I think that that's important. Not only that, because it's a great way to point out when other people aren't using them either. Yeah, it, it almost uh, reminds me a little bit of like intent-based automation, right? Where you can kind of, you know, you can say like this this automation can never put this data, you know, in a in a European data center. If you have, you know, I'm just thinking of like data compliance and stuff like that. But that seems to almost be the spirit of this. Obviously, they're they're vastly different, you know, compared to um, uh, intent-based networking is is kind of where I'm taking that off of. Yeah. But I thought it was an interesting uh, idea. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of value there. Next up here, Amazon Web Services launched Amazon AppFlow, which aims to help developers streamline data transfers between AWS and SaaS apps like Google Analytics, uh, Salesforce, ServiceNow, Slack, you know the rest. Although data flow can be bi-directional, AWS announcements plays up how AppFlow can move data from SaaS applications to other SaaS services for further analysis and, perform, and transform that data as it moves through the service. Not surprising that AWS wants to play up moving data into their services. AWS defines each flow as a call to a source application to transfer data to a destination, and each flow costs about uh, 0.1 cents to run, with data processing starting at 2 cents per gigabyte. Tom, news or not? Nah, I don't really know. Like, <laughs> in, in the long run, does this really matter? Okay, we can move data around a little bit more, and we're going to charge you for it. Yeah, it, okay. it, it seems like, hey, we, we've, this is another ingest channel. I mean, certainly, like, if you, if you live in Google Analytics or you have all sorts of Slack or ServiceNow integrations and stuff like that, and it really does free up, like, uh, something that was a manual process to, or, or, or some kind of kludgy script or something like that to automatically have that happen, I'm sure that's worth it for a lot of organizations, especially if you're kind of all in on AWS services. Um, but yeah, it just seems like um, here's another uh, line item for your AWS bill. Um, please uh, keep using yeah. it. Yeah. Th this reminds me when people are like, hey, you know, you can open a support ticket through uh, WhatsApp now. And I'm like, great. <laughs> something I never plan on using to do a thing that I hope I never have to do. Okay, great. Welcome. Yeah, it's like here's a here's a free ticket to hell. Please enjoy this. God bless. Uh, and finally, here on News or Now, security researchers at CyberArk found a security vulnerability in Microsoft Teams, letting an attacker potentially get user authentication tokens using 
a GIF. I say GIF because it's in a mean way. If it was positive, I'd say GIF. The attack requires access to a Teams.Microsoft subdomain and access to Teams to uh, an access to a Teams um, uh, login to be attacked and send a malformed GIF that will cause the recipient to send their authentication token back when clicked. That was really the basis of the exploit. Is that hey, if you send a GIF link. You're going to get some authentication tokens back, and if we can capture that, we can do all sorts of uh, stuff with that using that Teams API. Using that, they could read a user's uh, messages, send messages on their behalf, create groups, add or remove users from a group, or change group permissions. Microsoft says it secured the subdomains named by CyberArk in their initial disclosure, but the security researchers believe the exploit itself is still theoretically viable. Clicking on stuff is bad, Tom. News or not? (laughs) <laughs> the 90s cult they want their image <laughs> format back um i mean i could say that this is a giant issue and we need to hand it handle it gently and a whole bunch of other g words that have a soft sound but i mean bravo to the people at CyberArk figuring out hey i can steal your identity with an animated picture how awesome am i and i have to imagine it just seems very weird to that has to be for some sort of uh, uh, like verification that everybody can view uh, images or something like that to send to have that as a response to clicking on a link is to somehow send an authentication token seems like that's a, that's a weird weird behavior i have to imagine microsoft's working on patching that if they haven't already um but at least they've they've kind of locked down the subdomain portion of that as well Maybe it's like the the bank stuff where they want you to log in with a cognitive password. So like, it's like pick the following meme that you selected last week, and it's you know like like the guy sliding down the stairs or the sunglasses coming down or or you know, and, and I'm old and get off my lawn. Tom, we're going to move into our discussion now, and you know I love nothing more than some standards based drama. So are you ready for this? Yes, so we're going to be talking about some OpenCL. That's right. The Kronos Group released the provisional OpenCL 3.0 standard, the latest update to their open framework for programming GPUs and other compute accelerators. If you're not, I guess, familiar with OpenCL, the new version reverts the core API to a fork of OpenCL 1.2, with everything released as part of the OpenCL 2 releases made optional components, giving platforms more control over the features uh, to integrate. As Ryan Smith at Anantech points out, and we have a link to his article uh, in the blog post for this episode, I highly recommend you check it out. Really fascinating read. This is largely a reflection of how OpenCL consortium members have deployed OpenCL. And he points out that with OpenCL 2.2, it was released in 2017, uh, basically has no support from any of the major industry partners. We're talking NVIDIA, Intel, AMD, uh, Apple, embedded device makers. Basically, no one has provided uniform support for OpenCL 2.2. There are components of it that people are using, but basically because of it, it the, the OpenCL 2 was kind of an all or nothing standard to be compliant with it. Uh, a lot of like almost no one had adopted it basically made no one happy. Uh, Kronos hopes to have the standard ratified by members in a few months. But Tom, you know, OpenCL has always kind of been in some ways second fiddle when we're talking about GPU programming to something like NVIDIA's CUDA. Um, it definitely is more, obviously more widespread. It's meant to be used in heterogeneous environments as opposed to tied to specific hardware. So, you know, it's it's kind of a trade-off in that way. But how big of a deal is it to see a standard roll back, essentially just take out an entire version of it and say, you know what? We tried to make something nice. You didn't like it. We're, we'll, we'll go back to the most basic thing we we offer. Well, I'll tell you, it's not actually that big of a deal in the long run because it happens all the time. 
I mean, this is basically the way that a standards body works. Everybody thinks that a standards body is like a judge at a bench. Like, you know, you are guilty and that's it. No, a standards body basically goes, so what should we do? And like some people over on the left side of the room are like, hey, we should do this thing. And the people on the right side of the room are like, hey, we hate the people on the left side of the room. We should do a different thing. Not because it's better. We It's because we hate those people. And then they get together and they hash out an agreement and then they make a standard. And then the people on the left side of the room who wanted to use their version of the standard make a few modifications so that it's doing what they wanted to do anyway. And then the people on the other side of the room hate them for that. And then eventually what happens is, is the standards body tries to release a new standard that says, okay, we're going to throw out these things that nobody likes and we're going to make you guys play nice with each other. And then everybody goes, you know what? Forget you. We're going to go back to doing it the way we used to do it. And that's basically every standard since the beginning of time, except for the ones that nobody uses. My my question is though is you know for OpenCL to be useful so the idea here is that um, and again I, I'm I'm assuming people are at least familiar with the name OpenCL but the idea is like what Apple did with um you know one of the original developers of OpenCL uh, or an, an initial consortium members I should say um, essentially they were taking allowing GPUs to accelerate things in at, at the time OS 10 uh, now Mac OS they've kind of moved away from that actually and are now using their Metal um, uh, graphics API to kind of handle that acceleration um, so notable already that one of the most prominent founders of this is moving away from it. Um, but but the idea being like okay like we, we have CUDA which is great because we have specific we know exactly what the hardware is we can accelerate transcoding machine learning all this other stuff uh, that's really awesome but this is just for uh, you know we we have these things that are displaying things they can do other kinds of math that CPUs aren't great for it, is it is this kind of standard in the way I guess that it's being deployed in kind of least common denominator and build on top of that as needed as opposed to building in a big large standard. What I guess what is yeah, that for the larger GPU accelerated uh, uh, landscape for for a lot of these companies? Is it just going to push for more companies like Apple to create their own proprietary? Is, is you know like a company like AMD? Don't they have a lot of motivation to as opposed to having something like a sophisticated OpenCL standard to instead come up with their own version of CUDA or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly what it is, and here's the biggest reason why. So you're going to go out and you're going to buy a, a GPU to do something, right? And you have two choices, effectively, now. You can either buy an NVIDIA or you can buy AMD. Mm -hmm. Which one are you going to buy? Are you going to buy the one that follows all the standards and is this fast? Or are you going to buy the one that doesn't follow some of the standards, is 10% faster, but you have to learn a slightly different language? Um, speed, please? Faster? Better? <laughs> I mean, that that's literally every GPU since the beginning of time. And I can say that because I had a 3DFX card. Nobody programs to the standard. The standard is there so nothing falls apart. Everybody wants to eke out that extra 3% so that they can win a benchmark, so that they can claim that they're the market leader, so that they can win people over to their mind share, so that they can influence the next standard with all the stuff that they've built in secret sauce or custom programming. It just seems a little weird. And, you know, we, we've kind of talked on this show that, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, I guess open source is different from open standards, but that that kind of mentality has kind of overtaken at least the enterprise, uh, certainly, and, and has kind of gained a mainstream acceptance. And this seems still to be like, we, we can't agree on that open standard, so we're going to make it so that you can do your own secret sauce stuff. Um, and just not break as many things along the way. But I guess that's, I mean, like like the Anantech point uh, piece points out, this is just a reflection of reality, and they, they could either ratify that or they could try and fight against that for another standard and have no one adopted anyway. 
All right. Uh, next up here, uh, interesting. Uh, uh, some more, uh, I guess, hardware news. Some licensing news or hardware licensing. Here we go. Uh, the chip designer ARM announced an expansion of its flexible access program that will provide free access to most of its core IP to early stage startups. With the aim of spring development across IoT, automotive, and AI at the edge designs, it's open to anything. But that's kind of where they're targeting this at. This flexible access for startups will be open to companies with under five million dollars in funding, letting them experiment and prototype, design, manufacture, and test in the market with customers with no payments at all due until they move into commercial production. And then I believe they would still uh, move into the flexible access program where they would uh, essentially pay uh, just a small fee to get access to that. And then once they hit a certain threshold, they, they you know, you, you get paid, but you have to pay the full license amount or the, the standard license, I guess. Arm hopes that this can accelerate time to market by up to a year while reducing risk to startups. Tom, so my question to you, do you see Arm's kind of the first taste is free approach opening the chip design landscape to smaller startups? And do you think it could lead to competitive concerns down the line uh, for Arm, who is in certain verticals, basically the only, uh, you know, the only kind of architecture that's out there. You, this this always gets into this war between the chipsets. Okay, I can program things for ARM. That's not a problem. I'm basically programming for mobile devices at that point because those are the largest consumers of ARM cores right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. But if my software needs to run on some kind of a desktop computer or there's no porting mechanism like Apple's come up with for for some of their stuff, I mean, what, what's what, what's my recourse? I have to basically build the same app twice because if I want it to run on Intel platform x86 CPUs, it has to use different function calls. Uh, I don't see that. Okay. I see ARM using this as a lever to get people to start programming for their language and their, their architecture because it's essentially free to do it to start. Mm-hmm. So all you're doing is investing manpower because uh, there ain't no way I'm going to pay to put stuff on there until we start seeing more devices that are in a non iPad form factor, like a laptop or desktop using arm cores. Nobody's going to program for arm realistically. Like, you know, I'm, I don't expect to see enterprise CRM apps programmed for arm right now. Well, but, but a company, what a company could do though, is with these arm licenses effectively, and no one would ever do this, but create an accelerator for a C, an arm based accelerator for a CRM, you know, custom design that, and then be able to, you know, essentially prototype it and basically get it to the point where it's to market entirely for free, just only on the, the cost of the development, not for cost of licensing, and then have to worry about paying for that. What I think this is an interesting admission perhaps to arm is maybe the anxiety that we are increasingly seeing, you know, right now we're increasingly seeing companies uh, adopting ARM platforms uh, kind of to to get, you know, to, to do that kind of custom acceleration, whether it's, you know, public cloud providers like uh, Amazon with their Graviton processors, um, whether we're seeing, um, you know, uh, other custom chips like in Tesla's and stuff like that that are doing tensor processing and that kind of stuff, Google doing that as well. Uh, right now, that seems the the momentum to that is seems to be okay. We'll use ARM because you know that you can license their stuff and it's it's good IP and that kind of stuff. But the anxiety of around okay, we're we're seeing where this is going. At some point, it's going to be more cost effective for a lot of these companies to you know if it's a very specific function that they need acceleration on, to use an FPGA, to use an ASIC or something like that. Um, those are becoming increasingly more capable for higher performance things. And to get so so the idea being okay. We're going to make no barrier to entry to start designing chips for ARM for a lot of these small startups so that when, you, you know, once you've already have a couple, you know, tens of millions of dollars invested in R&D and stuff like that, you're not, you know, th- there's no way, obviously, they would they would move around from that. To me, that seems like combating, you know, kind of a long term, maybe existential uh, um, uh, concerns about more uh, hardware or specific hardware. 
Yeah, I can see that. And then finally here, interesting news uh, on the financial side. I guess we're just going to start getting uh, numbers for Google Cloud now. That's just like a world we live in, which is very weird to me. But Alphabet released its Q1 earnings, uh, including numbers for Google's cloud division. Again, the business unit as a whole saw revenue increase 52% to $2.78 billion. And that's actually an increase on the quarter. We'd only have basically one quarter to kind of go off of. uh, But it's it's grown. the, The growth has grown quarter to quarter. This does include both Google Cloud Platform, you know, the, the public cloud platform, as well as G Suite. But Google says that GCP drove significant growth across health, media, and communications, no surprise there, as well as supply chain optimization. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, Google has said that it will overall slow its pace of hiring and it's seeing ad rates slash. So overall, their earnings, uh, I think, were, I mean, certainly no one was surprised to see them um, uh, somewhat lower, although they still made billions of dollars in profit. But in the quarter, Google Cloud uh, saw its largest headcount increase within the company. And uh, Thomas Curian has said that the division will continue to make strategic hires during the crisis, whereas basically everyone else is either slowing or stopping, especially when it comes to marketing. Com- like looking at this, this was kind of one element of it. Okay, that maybe have been a news or not. But then adding into the fact that this is driving the uh, uh, this kind of growth is being uh, driven by the increasing popularity of things like Google Meet, which now they've announced has over 100 million daily active users and growing at 3 million users per day. That rate sounds impressive on its own and even more impressive, perhaps, because it's increased from 2 million added per day as reported on April 9th. So that growth accelerating even as kind of people, I guess, are getting used to more remote work. To help bolster that growth, Google is also opening Google Meet to any Google account user previously was limited to enterprise and education users, letting them schedule meetings with up to 100 participants with a 60-minute limit uh, coming into effect after September 30th, roughly putting them on pace with what Zoom is offering. Zoom offers less time, but I think more participants on a call on their free tier. Combined with the already announced Gmail integration, it looks like Google is trying to hit the gas with its cloud growth, kind of unsurprising, but kind of taking... um, advantage of the needs of people right now to maybe to maybe get some more new users here tom so we've got cloud growth we've got a specific g suite service that basically went from nothing to 100 million users or or so overnight um how are we reading the tea leaves here with how to kind of interpret now that we're getting growth numbers out of google's cloud division here i gave up on tea leaves and started shooting tequila a while back i mean we literally we're six months removed from them floating the idea hey, we're just going to kill this whole thing. We're just going to put it out to pasture or send it to the glue factory because we hate cloud. And now it's like, look, we're growing. We're offering things to education. And I think part of their growth actually comes from the fact that we're now in a point in our in the school year where people realize they're not going back to physical school. Yeah, um, so they have to either, they have to do something to be online. And basically at this point, if you haven't been using Zoom, or you have a, a, a reason why you're not going to use it, you're going to go find a free alternative. And well, a lot of places are using Gmail already because Google gives education free student mailboxes. So I, I get it. They're growing. Congratulations for not shooting your goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, let's be realistically speaking. This may be the only thing you're not going to kill in the next 18 months. And it may be the only thing that can actually supplant all that sweet, sweet ad revenue that you seem to be addicted to. Um, Realistically speaking though, I mean, I don't necessarily know how these numbers stack up. They're still in third place. Sorry, Larry, (laughs) get another zoom, but I don't, I, I, why this almost feels like, 
they're trotting out Thomas Kirian to go, you wanted us to keep this. We might as well show you what it looks like. Well, and what I think is interesting is if we had seen quarter on quarter, maybe decrease in revenue growth or something like that, that maybe plays in line with the everything has solidified among the top two or three public cloud providers. And, you know, it, this this is the way it's going to be for as long as there's public cloud until there's some sort of disruption or something like that. I do think it's interesting that it's it's staying at still growing at a relatively high clip. Again, they're probably timing to release those numbers going forward. We also don't see what the, you know, the kind of the impact of everybody working from home and switching to a lot of SaaS services uh, has for Microsoft and Amazon's earning in this time. I think Amazon's is due out later today. Uh, they're earning their their Q1 earnings, and then Microsoft is due later this week. So we will know by next episode kind of where this falls. If we see Amazon, you know, all of a sudden just just get huge revenue growth as everybody switches over to using AWS services, which I'm I wouldn't be surprised to see. Um, you know, that, that's a that's a completely different narrative. Uh, but we we have a Google Cloud that is. You know, um, kind of like Microsoft advantage of of bundling Windows Server kind of in with their their cloud stuff. You know, you have this uh, reliable, steadily growing business, I would say, of G Suite, which right now we're seeing meteoric growth in one aspect of it. But I think they can count on for having steady growth in the long term future. Uh, you know, the question is whether they can they can leverage that to to make any kind of. I, you know, I, I don't even want to say like there's, they're not even close to vaulting into that top two. It, it's, it's, it's another, it's an order of magnitude almost, uh, the difference, you know, kind of where more Microsoft is in terms of, in terms of that. But we've already seen them make significant inroads when it comes to specific types of cloud workloads. You know, uh, they, they all make their hay on, uh, machine learning, AI, that kind of stuff. That's, you know, Google has hardware baked in to, to kind of accelerate that kind of stuff. I'm wondering how they are going to pivot as, if, as we continue to see more remote work from home, if they can use that tighter G Suite integration to maybe onboard some more uh, Google Cloud uh, platform proper customers long term. I think that would be interesting. But, you know, both, again, it's not like they have any distinct advantage of that. Microsoft has done an amazing job of building out uh, Office 365 or Microsoft 365 or whatever they're calling it for both consumers and uh, businesses. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that uh, that has a different price structure. There's a whole bunch of issues we can get into that. Um, I, I do think that's an interesting point where Amazon kind of doesn't have an answer other than the fact that every other SaaS app is running on their platform. So as any other SaaS app grows, they will grow as a part of that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Google not necessarily dealing from a position of strength, but uh, maybe a position of uh, of a little bit more confidence than they've had in the business uh, for the past couple of years. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. They they realize they're in much better position than they thought they were. Now the question is, where do they go with it from there? Yeah. Uh, but I know where we'll go from here. We're just about going to wrap up the Gestalt IT rundown. Tom, thank you so much uh, for being here. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined? Uh, you can always head over to gestaltit.com. You can find a lot of great stuff that I'm publishing there. Lots of writing, lots of video content. Um, you know, we do have a security focused event coming up in just a couple of weeks where we're going to be hearing from a lot of great security companies. Uh, we're going to have some great security focused delegates. You can head over to techfieldday.com and check out what we've got planned there. Um, we've also got a lot of other great events that are coming up. Um, we're not going to let a little thing like a global pandemic stop us from giving you guys what you want. 
Uh, absolutely. And, you know, if your ears perked up, we were talking about, um, you know, that Kubernetes uh, can, uh, uh, driver uh, story uh, earlier today. You definitely want to head over to techfieldday.com and check out Tech Field Day Virtual with Red Hat. That's going on right now. The live stream uh, will be up until 4, I think about 4 p.m. Eastern time tonight. Um, so you can get all of the latest goodness uh, from Red Hat there. We have a full schedule um, of when, you know, what's going to be presented when. Uh, we'll have full videos of that up as well uh, soon after the event. We're really uh, our team is really great about turning those around. Always very impressive. Um, so make sure you check that out uh, if you are so inclined. But the Gestalt IT Rundown will be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the top IT news stories of the week in an easily digestible manner. Remember, we're on YouTube, uh, Gestalt, or youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video. And you can also find us uh, in your podcatcher of choice. The Gestalt IT Rundown is a podcast as well. So if the uh, video is not your bag, you can uh, have us in your ear holes exclusively. Until uh, the next time we meet, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have the most super sparkly of days.